Wade and introducing a podcast about words, about music. I'm Chris Wade. And I'm Molly O'Brien. And introducing on lead vocals, guitar, bass, songwriting, just about everything, it's Mr. Billy Corgan. Yes, we're talking through the legendary frontman and sole consistent member of Gen X rock titan Smashing Pumpkins, a person who is consistently portrayed as either alt-rock's greatest villain or saint, depending on who you're asking. Today we'll be diving into some of Mr. Corgan's most intimate thoughts and feelings about his life and career through the best access we have, his mid-2000s live journal called simply Billy Blog. But first, let's introduce our own guest. He's the host of your number one podcast source for leftist film and television commentary from Struggle Session. It's Leslie Lee III. Welcome to the show, Leslie. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Very excited to be here. Very excited to talk Billy Corgan and the Smashing Pumpkins because they are, yes, my favorite band in the whole wide world. I was just going to say, hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think the thing that we need to establish right off the top of the bat is that uh, Smashing Pumpkins simply rock. Yes, absolutely. I I know there was there was a brief moment of confusion. I want to <laughs> say between like 2010 to about 2017, and but I think maybe maybe a little bit later, maybe like 2012, where people were kind of anti pumpkins. But like people have heard Sheriff Brock again on some <laughs> TV show or some movie, and they realized yes, the Smashing Pumpkins were a great band, and like there's nothing wrong with liking them. Yeah, and I think that. We'll certainly get into this, and I imagine this might be the main thrust of what we talk about today, but it seems that there, to an extent, that the personnel problems, to which extent they were even, like, drastic problems. I mean, obviously, everybody in the Pumpkins had, at some point, their own, like, personal issues, but the fact that the lineup kept changing seemed to be something that people used to indicate that the band itself was, like, bad in some way, or that Billy was bad in some way. Uh, which, which is so bizarre because, like, w w maybe we'll dive into it. But if you ask any you know, those those people who think Billy Corgan is a megalomaniac who ruined the band, hands down, their favorite album will always be Siamese Dream, the <laughs> album on which Billy Corgan played every instrument, all the more or less, play all the more, uh, instruments more or less when he was at his. And it wasn't necessarily megalomania but it was it was like uh he was the lead guy on that so if you really love that album you love billy corgan purist you're not you just like the aesthetics of james and darcy and jimmy there uh with him um which i do love too and that's a big part of the smashing pumpkins um identity that aesthetic that they all had they had they just looked so cool and hip and diverse and balanced whereas something like nine inch nails where you know that was that's nine inch nails is a band too trent it's not just trent reznor all the time but mm -hmm. it's presented at but he's was able to market it as just my thing just me and so no one questions the fact that uh, like like robert patrick isn't still on tour with nine inch nails like, <laughs> no one says like oh i, I don't want to see him without robert patrick no one says that even though billy corgan is as much the heart of the smashing pumpkins as trent reznor is to nine inch nails they were just marketed in a different way so people perceive them and the music itself in vastly different ways uh We'll get into all of this in more detail because this is all like very much the story of the pumpkins and Corgan. But let's do what we, how we usually start the show and go around and say like how you what your past experience of the pumpkins is like. Where where, where did you come in? How how did it stand? How did they become your favorite band? We'll start with you, Leslie. Uh, so the 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 when they really got their hooks on me 
was when Bullet with Butterfly Wings came out. I was the mm-hmm. perfect age for that song. I'm pretty sure I was in seventh or eighth grade. And when that hit the radio, I was just like, wow, this is the greatest thing I've ever heard. Despite my rage, I'm still just a red in a cage. Yeah, that spoke to me on a very, very deep level as a middle school uh, boy. And I was just immediately drawn to them. And I, my, I, didn't, I couldn't afford the album. So my homie made me like a tape. He recorded a tape, but we only had like 90 minutes. And Millicali and Infinite Sadness is a double <laughs> oh. CD. So he had to cut some songs. So like still in my head kind of when I listened to the album, the version is that tape version. And there's no Tonight tonight the last four songs <laughs> at the end on the second disc they're all slow we were little kids so like oh the slow songs just cut the slow songs out and, make, and put it on this 90 minute tape so there's a version that i hear where I, it's just all like the hard songs and uh that and they've been my favorite band ever since really i love this custom tape idea i think honestly like people should do more of that just being like yeah these songs not really my aesthetic right now maybe i'll revisit them <laughs> it was it was partly partly just based on poverty like i couldn't afford like another tape so i was like put them both on one tape and <laughs> give me the good stuff like billy maybe edit a little bit no uh how about you molly I I was a, a little too young for the like 90s Smashing Pumpkins like heyday. Um although I was aware of them and I feel like I was aware of the title of the album Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness and just being like you can name an album that like that's kind of <laughs> interesting. But honestly my first like contemporary experience of Billy Corgan was when he started Zwan. <laughs> Oh, really? Wow. Yeah, I was a huge reader of like music magazines around because that was like 2003. Uh, And so I was reading these magazines and like he was getting a ton of coverage about Zwan. Yeah. And I don't even think I listened to Zwan, but I was just I was aware of the narrative of like this is Billy's next thing after the Smashing Pumpkins. So it has to be a big deal. But then since that awareness, I've definitely like I've listened to like the bigger Smashing Pumpkins hits. I haven't really dabbled in the later stuff. And Leslie, I'm actually curious to hear what you think of like the t- the tens and teens. Okay. Uh, yeah. Smashing Pumpkins stuff, but I love I love them. They're they're fucking great. They yeah. go hard and they're melodic and they're weird. It's good. Yeah, I was also maybe just like right on the cusp of being a little too young to get into them as they were really popping. And by time I was aware, they were like, you know, one of the biggest bands in the world. And I was coming into music as kind of a little uh, snot-nosed punk and indie kid. And, you know, when I heard about them through references like, you know, Pavement's Range Life and stuff, I was, when I initially was learning, I was like on the side of Malkmus. And it was kind of like, (laughs) dismiss them as, and I also remember, uh, (laughs) I remember, maybe first really getting into bullet with a butterfly wings through it being the signature song in the trailer for the Crispin Glover movie Willard. Oh yeah. And like maybe missing its initial radio play, but seeing it on TV all the time being like this song bangs. Who is, who is this? And I was like, Oh, this is what smashing pumpkin sounds like. (laughs) Uh, I also have, so I was, I was kind of like tangentially into them. Oh yeah. They're they're like big, you know, monster rock band of the nineties. And I just remember, having this conversation with a friend in college around like 2006 it was like a party i was just getting to know this guy who would go on to be a pretty good friend of mine and i was like so what kind of music do you like and he's just like smashing pumpkins and i was like okay cool like so like all 
like nineties alt rock. He was like, no, smashing pumpkins. <laughs> I don't know. Every song of theirs is perfect, and they have a bunch of albums. I don't know why anyone would need any more music than that. Yeah, I <laughs> like Smashing Pumpkins. That is the music I like. Seems simple for me, really. <laughs> and like that guy's like just very earnest dedication to it kind of got me to do to reconsider. And you know, I can't say that I know all these albums back and forth, but all the big songs. I mean, the the you know their singles collection is is pretty uh, unstoppable. Like you know, the as I start off saying, you know, kind of all the um. The, the indie alt-rock tabloid stuff around Billy, I always found minor minorly entertaining. Uh, but as time went on and I just like kind of considered the sounds and his like purity of vision around his own ba- band, I uh, definitely came more and more as time went on to like the defend Billy. Uh, Billy <laughs> Corgan did nothing, has done nothing wrong. Uh, <laughs> Smashing Pumpkins rock. Any, any of their detractors are just, it's all like, a, a, you know, cultural peacocking or something around like wanting to say that they are no they were the sellouts of the 90s or something which is another ridiculous position oh yeah yeah i mean to take like like what you said about that guy who only listened to smash pumpkins i've been there in my life before in college and part of it is because and not people who don't get into the pumpkins don't really know this billy corgan is a incredibly prolific songwriter there are hundreds and hundreds of uh demos alternate versions unreleased songs that like if you like you can follow the smashing pumpkins like you like some people who are just like into fish and like listen Mm -hmm. to every single bootleg you can do that with the smashing pumpkins because he he has you know 10 different versions of bullet butterfly wings that he's played over the years like every he's always changing up the sound so it's a if you like the smashing pumpkin it's such a deep pool to dive into you can get completely lost just in smashing pumpkin stuff and never run out of stuff to listen to basically mm-hmm. yeah you can do you can be into like the live version from the cut the late aughts comeback yeah. tours is yeah. my preferred yeah uh, yeah, and there is also like a certain intimidation that comes with a band that can be followed that passionately uh, from, you know, a casual listener like myself and like, yeah, I mean, I like all their big singles that somehow doesn't seem adequate to say like, no, you're either you're either in or you're out <laughs> yeah. uh, or something. But, you know, yeah, they have they have good they have good singles. Just listen and listen to the big ones, the ones you already know the names of. And you're like, oh, yeah, these songs rock. Yeah. And it it was always like the the, the funny thing about Billy Corgan be- Billy Corgan being a sell, call a sellout is so funny because it like it's part it, there's some truth to it because he was always about business. He never he didn't want he came from a working mm-hmm. class background. He considered being in a band work and he wanted to get paid fairly, even though he did end up getting screwed over by the record labels as everyone else who did. Didn't. Yeah. Yeah. But he was very, he was the, he was the, you know, when all the people were hanging out backstage doing drugs or whatever, uh, Billy Corgan was the one talking about, wanted to talk about like contracts and shit. And people didn't really like that because like that's not punk rock to care yeah. about money. And like, he was like, no, I want to fucking, you know, own my shit, build my, legacy but at the same time like he could have so easily after siamese dream just made siamese dream two three four five six seven and he chose not to it's really funny because when they broke up the first time the they put out a track called untitled which sounds exactly like that error just as a flex to show like okay the people who've complained about my last three or four albums like i can turn this on anytime i feel like i can make 
that sound that you liked in middle school and high school anytime I feel like I'm still that same guy, but I, as an artist, you know, want to continue to grow and change and do different stuff. So even though I, even uh, he's finally come to a point where I don't really like most of what he's putting out now, sonically, I still Mm -hmm. respect him for still trying to grow and change and do different things. What one caveat, he did say he's putting out a sequel to, um, melancholy and the infinite sadness uh coming up i don't know if we're going to mention that but he is going to finally go back a little bit uh in his sound yeah i mean that that is the thing that it seems um appropriate to talk now because it does seem like we're on the verge of some new pumpkins news right now like they just released some new stuff in in august right yeah they released a couple of singles um they got an album called sear uh coming out very very soon uh, uh, that's what the two singles are for. And Billy also announced that he's working on yet another album that's going to be a sequel to Melee Kali, the Infinite Sadness, and Mach- Machina, which are, uh, which for people who don't know, they, they are both concept albums about this uh, character uh, named Glass. And this new, a- this album that's going to come out after the next album is going to be a sequel to those albums and he also has a third album coming out which is the sequel to the new album that's about to come out so oh my god (laughs) we're entering well actually molly and i both pulled this pulled this quote that we liked uh of him talking about like the thematic consistencies between all the albums uh he just said simply uh i like he wants everything to sound sound of a piece and he says welcome to pumpkin land this is what it sounds like on planet pumpkin so welcome to Planet Pumpkin, y'all. Yeah, you uh, like even if you start it now, like you're gonna ha- even if you didn't listen to any Smashing Pumpkins release before the day, you're gonna have hundreds of songs to listen to yeah. if you get into Smashing Pumpkins now. It's just ridiculous uh, how much he's doing now. Uh, now I'm not so excited about those last couple of singles. <laughs> they I didn't, I wasn't really feeling them, but these idea of like a sequel album. Uh, that's going to be a little bit more, I, I assume, a little bit more heavy, a little bit more, you know, the metal leanings pumpkins. I, I'm kind of I'm very interested in that. Um, I just want to say one more thing about like globally about Billy before we get into the memoir, which is, you know, it's brought up by something that you were talking about, about like the contracts and being, you know, kind of from a working class background is that I think one of the things that kind of baffles people about him is that he does have, have all these like kind of contradictions in that he like has this this vast like glam gothic presentation but at the same time he's very like workmanlike and you know everything he, and likes he can, pro wrestling yeah and likes <laughs> yeah. pro wrestling and he like kind of presents on stage as like this vampire person but also we'll just talk about like how much he loves cheap trick and stuff yeah. like that yeah so <laughs> the i think scorpions. it's like, yeah and and i think it's it's sometimes people have a difficult difficulty reconciling when people have those kind of con- contradictions like no you're like you almost expect someone like him to be like, no, you're a goth guy. You can only talk about the cure and Bauhaus yeah. and like stuff like that. And you know, it doesn't like loving baseball and wrestling does not fit into that <laughs> mold of type of guy. So there must be something wrong with him or something, but it's 
just be being a guy who knows how to be a showman. Yes, absolutely. So Molly, do you want to hop into some of this? Yeah, the, the live journal. Let's t- take <laughs> us back to the era of live journal, bro. The fact that I was live journaling at the same time as Billy Corgan is like really heartwarming to me. <laughs> I didn't know he was also on the the LJ, but I'm I'm very excited for that. So yeah, he wrote. I mean, he this blog we're covering. Um, just the, his specific, all his posts that are tagged confessions, because those are like the marked with a year, like basically retroactive diary entries from different points in his life. Um, and so he's writing, these are all, I think, published between April and July of 2005, which it's a very impressive amount of writing that I think is actually pretty good writing. Definitely uh, heavy on the ellipses. But otherwise, like pretty like solid prose. Yeah, he uh, has his own. Definitely, he has his own style. I think every celebrity who got online early developed this kind of like style because I like Prince does the same thing where they just like talk. They write how they want because every yeah. single person they meet in real life has to accommodate to them. So it's yes. like I don't have to follow the rules of grammar if I'm writing something out because I'm a celebrity and a superstar. I yeah, will, I will also just say just why we're doing this live journal is that Billy has been threatening to release a memoir for like over a decade. Quite yeah. a long one as well, and, and right? And he keeps saying it's going to be like a thousand pages. Or he's, I think the last time he said something about it, if you Google Billy Corgan memoir, there'll be some uh, news stories from like three years ago where he's like, the first thousand pages of the memoir are done. Oh, it's even more of a threat than just a memoir because it's also supposed to be a sort of spiritual exegesis too. Mm. which is like i don't know like uh billy i don't know if he get got to it was the live journal phase where he got i think it was after live journal where he got really into talking about his religion and his christianity he's kind of backed off of that during the like twitter instagram era of billy but there was a while where it was just like he was very 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 uh, getting very into religion in a way that was really hard to follow and understand as you like most celebrities when they get into religion. <laughs> he also has a published book of poetry, which I thought maybe we should pick up, but I, I felt like that might get us too easily into the trap of like making fun of this guy for being over serious or anything, but so. Or just doing poetry analysis, which I find also really hard to do. Yes. <laughs> poems yeah, are just so short, you know, po- poems. I mean, there there's, something good about him and he's a good lyricist so it's like you know like like i feel like you can only make so much more fun of him for his poems when his songs have like sold like billions of dollars like he, yeah yeah mm-hmm. he has something there yeah yep anyway so this live journal uh sojourn he's also the posts are totally randomized for the most part. Um, he jumps from like 1974 to 1986 to 2005 or whatever without much uh, <laughs> connection in between. But I kind of like piece to get it together so we can talk about it chronologically. But in his first post, the way he introduced his writing about himself, uh, he writes, I am the architect of the Billy Corgan that you know and love or hate or don't give two cares about. I created him and at times have loved him, feared him and despised him more than you could possibly dream up. It is the brutal truth. Of, this is the um, 
the diary. It is the brutal truth or a sad sob story, a tale of glory and failure or the fictional scrapings of a madman and has been. There are dead bodies and old pictures and pornographic gasps and ghosts so shy they are the ghosts of ghosts. <laughs> but all of the voices are here and they want to talk to you. In fact, there is a fight as to who goes first. <laughs> That's the drama. Really, I love that. I love that. I I have actually I actually didn't read most of these. I really like that. I, I mean, I love Billy Corgan, so of course. <laughs> He's he's got the drama. And also he's like he's clearly like self-aware that he knows that this is like a little bit dr- melodramatic. Yeah, he always had like people really underestimate his sense of humor about things in gen- and about himself like that cat picture people keep posting oh, yeah. like they <laughs> think they, so they like they post it like to own him when it's like he knew, like, he approved that. He put that out. He knew that he was Billy Corgan holding cats when he did that. He knew it would be funny. Like, he he enjoys that. He enjoys messing with people, like, mm-hmm. playing with his, playing up to the image that he that he has, even the especially the negative images, because he's a pro wrestling fan. Like, he has always presented himself. He has always used kayfabe to keep his name out there and uh, like no one has really re- truly caught on about that yet he, mm-hmm. he knows the power of being a heel when he needs to be yes yep so the the main takeaway i got from billy's early years is that he had an insanely difficult childhood uh his parents split up when he's pretty young i think he's like three or four and he says he can literally remember the moment when his father takes his younger brother and like leaves the house so like not only did his parents split up he actually got split up from his younger brother for a while he lived with like a combination of like grandparents and great-grandparents and then finally he ends up with his father who has gotten remarried to what can literally only be described as like a wicked stepmother um and it's it sounds insanely traumatic. I think Billy is like super aware of how traumatic it is. And he specifically describes moving in with his father and stepmother as the time that the real violence of my life begins. That's, yeah. that's tough. Yeah. The stuff that I've read about his, I mean, the, he, I haven't seen much about it, but it does seem like it, it is a, a towering shadow over his life is that this time with his, his father and stepmother and also his, um, his his brother is developmentally disabled. Yes, yes, and he didn't really write too much about that. Um, he more writes about the relationship that basically, like he and his brother were also kind of because they were separated and then reunited later. Like there was just like a dynamic between them that like never really got repaired for years and years and years. Because holy shit! But I would describe his description of his childhood as like completely Dickensian in just like this literally like poor little boy uh getting mistreated he for just a laundry list he gets in like a horrible bike accident and no one takes him to the hospital um one day he forgets to get his permission slip for a field trip signed and his stepmother locks the house when she leaves for work in the morning and so he had to like hang out outside in a park by himself and just sadly describes like having to pass an entire day alone as like a little kid and it's so heartbreaking <laughs> um and then he's abused physically abused by his stepmother and stepfather but he has a really awful description of 
um, on his sixth birthday, committing some kind of infraction that leads his father to beat him. And then he has to go to his birthday party like nothing is wrong. And then he's like holding it together. And finally, his brother breaks his G.I. Joe doll that he got. And he like loses it. And he specifically, he says, this is all too much for me. The last straw, really. And I vainly attempt to appeal to my stepmother as to the unfairness of what my brother has done. She responds that it's the kind of thing that happens to terrible children like me. Oh, yeah. Billy. I mean, I mean, if you, I mean, he had a hit single about this too. Like, right. Disarm is about this and, you know, some of the trauma he suffered some of the abuse he suffered um he it, it i mean it, it really is a core part of him as an artist even though like his uh the billy corgan facade is not too vulnerable generally speaking um he's, mm-hmm. uh but in mute in his music he can be extreme incredibly uh vulnerable but yeah it's like and you know he he talks about he he, he doesn't talk about this as much now i think he has seemed to have in some ways made peace with a lot of this uh this mm-hmm. pain and loss um like he he posted a lot of positive stuff about his you know father in recent years for example when mm-hmm. before before he would always talk about i don't know if you have an entry on this but he was talking about like his father was a musician too but yeah. his father like discouraged him and put him down a lot it was like if it's like a prince in purple rain if you remember <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, that like him and his father like there was a lot of like negativity there there was no bond there was no bond between the two uh, musically, even though Billy Corgan became this big, you know, megastar musician, they couldn't. It was for it took them a few decades to really bond and connect over that. So yeah, yeah, and I think in the music itself, it really comes through in the, as you were saying, like his maybe his public persona isn't super vulnerable, but I would say almost every I could use the word vulnerable to describe almost every major Smashing Pumpkins song, but it's yeah. this weird mix of like this super tough music. With the very uh, vulnerable, often self-loathing lyrics, um, like even zero, even stu- even they're like purely like aggressive metal songs, like Zero or Bullet with Butterfly Wings. If you mm-hmm. listen to the lyrics, they're about they're not about like being a badass or anything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which I guess, as as they often were like lumped with their contemporaries, like uh, Nirvana and Pearl Jam and stuff. But Billy really didn't like being. Uh, said that they were all didn't like when people would say that they were always like the next Jane's Addiction. No, now we're the next Nirvana. No, now we're the next Pearl Jam. And he always wanted to stand apart from it. And I do think there is kind of like a a fair categorical difference between these kinds of things. His main beef, I think, always was that he was from Chicago, not Seattle, and yes. he really <laughs> just on a pure level hated being grouped with some fucking aliens from the West Coast that he has <laughs> no real connection with. Even though he was end up being friends with a lot of those people. And also, like, his influences um, were very different than a lot of those bands. And I think that's why the Smashing Pumpkins were, were a lot more diverse musically. And a lot of their stuff holds up a little bit better than, you know, the more pure 90s alternative uh, bands. Even though I love all those bands, it's just like, I'm never going to... You know, I'm never gonna hear like the same thing, a uh, d- diverse sound. I'm not like there's no other band that 
uh, that I can think of from that era that like does shoegaze and country, you know, like yeah. in yeah. the same album era. Like no one really had the range of the uh, of the Smashing Pumpkins. It is funny to think of him as a Chicago guy because he is very much a Chicago guy. Yes. He loves Chicago, and there is something always very funny about that that kind of like chip on your sh- shoulder of Chicagoness. It is always the second city. Second city. Yes. It is. It is not. It is neither New York or L.A. It is always the the little brother in the middle that's like, hey, we're a big thriving metropolis too. <laughs> and then I also find it very interesting that he had a brief detour to the to Tampa area in Florida. Just to inject like three years of Florida weirdness into his Chicago guy, Florida man. Yeah, uh, <laughs> his Chicago guy uh, persona, which I, f- I feel like is is the secret sauce that maybe makes him the 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 guy that he ended up being. Yeah, I think the Tampa stuff it certainly explains his love of like hair metal, like well, mm. proto not hair metal, but proto hair metal, like the Scorpions and yeah, yeah. stuff, and just metal, just plain old school metal, which you don't necessarily hear as much in the other grunge bands like he was always like he always loved like doing big long guitar solos and stuff when that was like very uncool at the time mm-hmm. uh just because you mentioned it twice and we're on this this is one i was listening to um prepare for the today's ep uh the one that really stood out for me this time is zero so let's listen to a uh, a few sn- snippets of Zero. I'm going to share some computers now, and maybe we can move into the next part of the memoirs over a little zero. Here we go. Yeah, just all those like monster, like this monster riff, and then this the, could uh, be hockey music. Yes, this is almost hockey music. Not to denigrate like, uh, this as hockey being music. Twelve and hearing that, come on. Yeah. Also, his voice is so cool. It's so, it it's like one percent in any other direction into like the nasally or the whiny would just like kill it, but it's right in this specific pocket where it really works. Like it just worked. It really worked, and he knew how to manipulate it and make it work. Like I really, really love his voice in this song. Actually, it's too bad because now he's such a good singer that he doesn't sound like this anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's such a good breakdown that yes. got this song banned from millions of middle school talent shows. <laughs> you can't. Listen, son, you can't say God is empty in front of all these parents. <laughs> anyway, Zero rocks. And you, yeah, that's the one where you really hear that like mid 80s hair metal, like monster riffing uh, come through uh, the most. At least in the first, what, yeah. 40% of melancholy. Yeah, yeah. They, there was a couple of uh, heavier ones, the like XYU, one that I'd never heard a song that heavy until I heard it. Uh, XYU I like that was that really blew my mind and bodies um, on the album as well it's just really like I mean there's so much power but and it's still like they're like their most popular song probably right now is 1979 which is just like a 
really like sweet, somber, acoustic song. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what's next in the uh, in the blogs? So you know. He obviously shares a lot about his childhood that's very difficult. He then kind of skips over a decent portion and we next find him in Florida, which he never really says why he goes to Florida. I don't know if he knows someone there or what, Um, but he goes there after high school instead of going to college and he's kind of rejecting uh, in some ways you know, he, he had the opportunity to go to college. And I think he also had some sort of inheritance from a grandmother that he sort of forfeited by not going to college. Um, so it's a very like contrary move, but he finds, he finally puts together a band called the marked. Um, and he's, he describes them as like, I think eclectic in a sense, in the, in the same way that smashing pumpkins ended up being, but very much like an eighties goth English type of vibe, Mm. which again, in Florida, <laughs> in mid in the mid eighties, like it's a little weird. Yeah, the stuff that I read about it, I, you know, obviously this is very cursory. Was that some? It was like obliquely referenced that he found the music scene of Chicago dissatisfactory, so he took his like gloomy English rock band to out like uh, uh, outside of Tampa, which I I don't know. There's there's some something some key step there that we're missing, but uh, it is a funny to a funny move. Uh, this is why we need the complete memoirs. We do because uh, we don't really know exactly uh, the history there. We, I mean, we should mention like when I uh, talked to you about, uh, I messaged you about doing this a couple years ago. You were like, "There's no books written about the Smashing Pumpkins." There's like, there's one that's a very much like a like one like a scholastic book. If you see mm-hmm. what I'm saying, like a like a the, the diary of the Smashing Pumpkins and. It's, um, made before i think it was made before they split the writing is actually pretty good but it's not really a comprehensive you know biography it's more like a summary of all the articles that right mm-hmm. around at the time yeah, yeah i think when we first were talking about it it was when billy was threatening to release this i love that we keep saying threatening about it just, <laughs> i'll do it <laughs> uh, release this memoir so i was like well maybe we'll wait a year or so or like see if this comes out but this seems like something that that is is going to be decades in the making yeah, because he's got he's getting very busy uh, with the music. I didn't mention he's also doing the remaster of Machina as well. So that's like 150 songs that they're going to be putting out. <laughs> supposedly putting out in the past year. Now this is the thing to know about Billy Corgan. He announces a lot of stuff, and it doesn't, and a lot of it doesn't end up working out or happening through no particular any, any particular person's fault, but. It's just that he's trying to do a lot of this stuff without the major labels, you mm-hmm. know, putting it all together. And it doesn't always like work out. He doesn't get to do everything uh, he wants to do, but he's always doing something at least. We, we love that. Yes. We love a hard worker. We, we stand a prolific king. We stand a prolific king. <laughs> so the uh, his, his Florida stint is also, I think, the first mention of what ends up being a bit of a trend for like the next like almost 10 years of his life, which is that he has always pretty squalid living conditions. <laughs> I think when he was recording um, Gish, he might've been in a parking garage, living in a parking garage. Yes, I saw that. <laughs> um, but in this case, he's living in his rehearsal room and he describes that as so awful. I think it's like $76 a month is his share of it. Um, but he puts dishes of water in all four corners of the room because for some reason the cockroaches that infest the room like to drown themselves at night. 
So <laughs> so he just like every night puts out the water and then wakes up and and disposes of the drowned cockroaches. But that's that's his vibe in Florida. Uh, that sounds pretty dismal. Having having rented an urban rehearsal uh, room uh, in several places in New York, I can imagine the temptation to be like a, a 19 year old in a band and just say, oh, I'll just live in the rehearsal room. <laughs> mm-hmm. But also can just picture how squalid that at would actually be. Yep. He also describes his living in that sense. Like he literally doesn't have a bed. And so he's like, he's describing himself of being like bruised all the time because he just like sleeps in a ball on the floor. <laughs> and we should mention Billy Corgan is six, four. Yes. He's a six foot four man. <laughs> he's gigantic. He's, he's in the category of, of a uh, jock musicians, which, you know, like, like a uh, Robert Pollard from guided by voices who we, talked about a yes. few episodes ago yeah again another one of these like weird contradictions about him just it, part of his presentation like i would never think of him as like athletic but he was like a strong athlete uh up until like high school yeah he played baseball and i think i also remember from meet me in the bathroom that um didn't james murphy used to play basketball with him when they would be like hung over and sweating out their drugs oh yes on like the lower east side <laughs> seems nice um, the other uh, standout from this Florida period is that he stopped bathing and said, at, like, it seemed at first like it was just a, a inconvenience thing. But then uh, he kind of takes it as like a challenge. And he says he finally loses the dank smell of sweat and acquires a sweet pheromonal type fragrance. Mm. <laughs> I've there are people who this is like a new age thing of like no bathing advocates yeah. or like no soap advocates who are like, no, no, no. Steve your, Jobs. your body is addicted to soap. You just need to stop yeah. soaping for like a month and then you'll finally get back to your like natural smell. Steve Jobs was one of those guys too. Ezra Miller is one of those guys. The, the guy who plays the flash. Oh, uh, yes. really? Yes. Wow. Wow. Uh, don't buy it. Don't believe it. Uh, I think that you are that what you are detecting is really your your own smell glands uh, adjusting to your own scent, calcifying perhaps. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it is. I just I don't know. It's funny that Billy is like he he doesn't the way he writes like there's both no self judgment but also in acknowledging it. I guess that is the self judgment. Like if if that makes sense, he's not. He doesn't feel he's not just like, oh, that was gross, but he does kind of acknowledge that it was like a little gross. Uh, and he also is very insulted. He has like a beautiful French girlfriend who tries to get him to shower and he like breaks up with her because of it. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. French girlfriend dumped him for uh, or no, he dumped his French girlfriend for trying to make him shower. <laughs> um, but I also really liked the way he described this time period where he's still like striving to be like a musician. And he says, uh, I've, I make tapes for anyone who will listen. No one tells me I have a future making music. And most treat me like I'm one of those guys who looks the part and acts the part. But everybody knows he sucks. <laughs> I just love that. He, he almost reminds me of um, kind of uh, uh, Steve Albini at this time of being kind of like sitting in his, his room, just making all these tapes of like trying to figure out what the sound inside of his head sounds like. Yeah, he was very uh, meticulous about his growth. He like um, he said he played like guitar every day for six hours a day for four years, God. Uh, in order to like get that good. But that's why he says he doesn't have to practice 
guitar anymore because he <laughs> fucking did that to himself. Yeah, well, and then he also <laughs> played guitar constantly for, you know, 25 years. I, I buy yeah. that. Um, so the Florida time is more or less a failure. <laughs> he doesn't make it in Florida. I don't really know why he thought he would. He goes back to Chicago and lives with his father. And his father at this point, the way he describes it, he says his father's drug problems are interwoven into the fabric of our life to the point where it is like standing next to a roaring, roaring 747 and pretending there is no noise. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> I guess that's the introduction of a uh, drug related trauma into Billy's life, which will be something that is a consistent feature for the next like 20 ish years. Yeah. Is Billy? A, well, actually, no, I was about to ask if he's a teetotaler, but he does mention later when he's recording, I think, like Siamese dream doing mushrooms and taking pills. But it doesn't seem like he ever got into quite the level of yeah, like, substance abuse. That's the thing. No, well, he he always used drugs, and I think he even might still use drugs now. But he's never had an addiction problem, even though mm -hmm. obviously several people around him have. But I remember, even as late as maybe like five, six, seven years ago, him talking about getting uh, uh doing drugs with Marilyn Manson. Um, mm. So he he never so he never had, but he just never got a addicted even though like jimmy had an addiction problem darcy had addiction problem the people in zwan had addiction problems but mm -hmm. he just like never really like he was a always able to keep it casual for the most part from what <laughs> i understand it might be a part of his like suite of uh, other issues including like ocd like needing to be uh you know very much in in control yeah mm. the kind of changing turning point as he describes it in terms of like him believing in himself to have a, a music career, he meets a woman who eventually becomes his wife and he plays her as he quotes a song, a collection of songs I have been working on for no one. <laughs> and she responds to it and she tells him uh, that I have a true future in music and ju just her telling me this in the kindness of her room and with the grace of her heart changes my life forever. He needs somebody to believe in him. Yeah. yeah. I mean, don't we all? And I mean, she was, she turned out to be right. He did like change music forever, more or less. Yeah. She called it. And it is. So, like, when he comes back to Chicago, like, I guess despite him talking about how he doesn't really believe or doesn't really know if it's going to happen or not, he comes back kind of with the idea of like, I, there, I am going to do a band. It will be called Smashing Pumpkins. I just need to figure out like the, the people who I can do this with. Right. Yeah, like he was looking, he was he was working at a record shop and he was just trying to get some, he moved back to Chicago and was working at a record shop and was just trying to get something going, something together because he knew he could do it. This would be his third band. Like in high school, he was in a band called Hexen. Then it was DeMarked. And then he was just like, and he had a sound like already, like he was ready. He just needed like people around him, uh, they, they tell a story that even after he got James and Darcy, like they were so ready to get things going. Like they just used the drum machine before actually getting the drummer, before people told them like, hey, your sound is so good. You actually should just get really get a drummer uh, for <laughs> this. Yes, I do love drum machines, but if you're playing in a band, you can't kind of can't uh, underestimate the value of live drums. Unless, of course, you are, again, Steve Albini. <laughs> Yeah, the he doesn't 
describe the period of forming the Smashing Pumpkins in the confessions. The first time we meet the pumpkins together is when he, it's 1992, which I think that's, is he recording Siamese Dream in 1992? I think that's yeah, the correct timing. Yeah, probably because Gish came out in 91. Oh, that's skipping. Oh, so he didn't give any Gish uh, era stuff or even the earlier stuff because um, no. people, might, people might be surprised if you listen to the early, early Smashing Pumpkins tapes and you can actually see like a old, like a uh, public access uh, TV uh, performance. I think they're called maybe Smashing, if you look up Smashing Pumpkins, maybe Basement tapes on mm -hmm. uh youtube and you can see them yeah live on live on live on pulse and they act and it's actually on youtube and they've like uh, uh upgraded the footage but it's you know very early smashing pumpkins and like they sound like they sound like joy division or new order <laughs> more like is very much post-punk with you know billy's like doing his you know kind of metal stuff bringing it in bringing in the heavier stuff but it really is a very different sound than even what they ended up with on gish let's mm. listen to some live on pulse I mean, that's just Joy Division. That's just Joy Division, yeah. the cure. And they're wearing black with a yeah. cross. <laughs> no, they, yeah, they look like, they look like a goth post game. Not even just Joy Division, like early Joy Division. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right, let's hear, let's wake up the whole song. It is very funny to think that that does, like, it does sound like a Joy Division ripoff band at the very beginning, but then as soon as Billy's singing, there is just something so, yeah, <laughs> I don't know how better to say it, but so Chicago about it, <laughs> yeah. it like, kind of immediately rips it out of that, that gloomy, uh, yeah. like, northern British uh, uh, vibe and into something distinctly, I don't know, American Midwestern. This is Nothing and Everything, live on Pulse Basement Jam, 1988. I, I really like love those and that's the sort of thing that you discover like five or six years into listening to the Smashing Pumpkins like <laughs> that they had this completely different sound that you can listen to from back in the day and a lot of it is still preserved because thankfully they've had you know a rip they were one of the first bands to really have that obsessive online fan base built mm -hmm. around them i mean they were one of the first major bands before radiohead to release an actual real album on the internet so there's so much archival stuff that you can um, find out there and they also were had a pretty open taping policy for all their concerts so you can hear all the different versions of all these different songs uh, throughout the years you can even just go on archive.org 
and like there's hundreds of Smashing Pumpkins uh, concerts, and nobody's suing to get them taken off or anything. Uh, and and Billy kind of actively um, encouraged that like there was an official Smashing Pumpkins forum that he would like post in like way back early, and I'm yes. doing this live journal thing. He was he was. He's a poster. Yeah, he is a yeah, poster. He is a poster. He's one. He's a poster soul. And this is kind of where you know some of the bad side of Billy comes in. His he has a major problem with the fact that he really can't post how he wants because of our PC culture and the SJW warriors. Oh, He's afraid God. he can't. But I mean, that is partially that, and it's partially like everything he posts gets just twisted by like the like the necrophiliac uh music journalism thing yeah. like like it, it's so funny like if you follow I, I if you have google alerts like every time billy corgan makes an instagram posts it like gets blogged and re-blogged <laughs> endlessly so he he has a problem with that too so it's both like a legitimate side and also like a not so legitimate side yeah the thing mm. that i mostly remember from that is like his early 20 teens like flame war with courtney love Oh, I yes. remember that being like an ongoing thing where they were just like, just for months at a time, it was like endless. Billy Corgan takes to Twitter to to roast uh, Courtney Love post breakup, uh, and Courtney Love takes to Facebook to to excoriate <laughs> Billy Corgan based on his comments on Twitter. Courtney, another true poster, another true poster. I'm like, yes. I, I just hope I just I would just love to see them. I think maybe they're getting along now. They like like they're relationship goes in such waves uh billy's relationship i think with marilyn manson has a similar thing too where sometimes they're friends sometimes they're enemies so i hope they're all back friends now it seems like that is the way that it goes with him and everyone yeah more more or less yes i think jeff schroeder the current guitarist is probably the person he's had the longest consistently amicable relationship with at least on this higher level uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, i think yeah jeff schroeder surprisingly enough just this little quiet guy who shreds on the guitar <laughs> ends up being he was a little bit younger than billy but ends up being like the guy billy can get along with for the longest look man i just want to shred yeah <laughs> yeah so in the next kind of phase of the live journal they're recording Siamese Dream. The weird timing of this is like they're working with Butch Vig, who they worked with on Gish, and with uh, Nevermind, Butch Vig, obvi- Butch Vig obviously like blew the fuck up. Yeah. And so they're dealing with like someone who finds like value in perfectionism and a payoff in perfectionism. And I think that vibes with Billy and maybe not so much some of the other people in Smashing Pumpkins. Yeah, it was exactly that. And it basically came down to Butch felt like uh, James and Darcy weren't good enough to get the album to play on the album that they could make. And he wanted Billy to play all the, the guitar and the bass parts because he just th- thought uh, Jimmy and Darcy couldn't couldn't do it and was the producer's mm-hmm. call. But of course, they ended up resenting Billy for it to the point where even when like they were interviewed at one point, either while they were recording, this was back when you would like 
take eight months to record an album, <laughs> which doesn't happen anymore. But they like were interviewed by some magazines while they were recording, and J- uh, James and Darcy would make like little snippy, bitchy comments, basically saying like what was going down, which is they weren't playing on the album. And Billy, you know, even recently was like, "That was the stupidest thing to say. Why would you tell people you're not playing on the album?" Just like. <laughs> sit and collect the money just keep it cool like i i don't know why 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 would you complain about that and and he felt you know some kind of way in kind of caught in the middle because it wasn't his call to not Mm -hmm. have them on it was more this big name producer who obviously knows what he's doing right the other portion of that is that jimmy the drummer was also you know he was trying his best to get the drum parts right and i guess there was like what started as like a friendly ribbing relationship between Butch Vig and Jimmy that turned sour when Butch was like, you have to drum better. Like you have to do a better job. And so like Jimmy would do a take and then Butch would like chop up the tape to make a perfect drum track, (laughs) which cannot feel good spiritually as a drummer to just have that thrown in your face. Like "Mm, you actually don't have like perfect timing. Like you didn't do this the best of your ability. So it's, I don't know, this all sounded very tense. (laughs) And this is also, so like they're getting more popular. And at this time, the music press is really enjoying leaning into this idea of Corgan as some kind of monster. Hey, uh, it's Metallica by accident Uh, as like some kind (laughs) of, you know, a a tyrant who's like uh, pushing, uh, pushing his band members around. I think also at this time that they had relocated to Georgia partially to get Jimmy Chamberlain as far away from drugs as possible. Mm -hmm. But he also still found a hookup in Georgia and then there's still drugs in Atlanta. (laughs) Yeah, It would still, it would disappear for days at a time. And like, and he, and Corgan's also like leaning into his or, or being uh, beset by uh, his uh, depression and OCD and stuff. And, and is uh, trying to combat that by basically putting all of his mental energy into the record. It it doesn't seem like a a good time for anyone. No, not at all. And like the song, you know, that, really came out of the era like today was about like it it didn't start off good because he wrote today about being uh having writer's block and wanting to kill himself (laughs) even though he wrote the song in like uh you know a very like a day which is you know became this huge massive uh hit like it was a real struggle the siamese dream period like started i i think billy has described it as like the start of the fracture that eventually destroyed the band and he, he and he's not and he doesn't really seem to put the blame on any particular person it just like they were very young it was high pressure like they had this studio breathing down their necks they have this big name producer and billy can't write james and james and darcy can't play play and there's there was so much riding on this in a way that like no like you know sophomore band today will ever have to like worry yes. about mm-hmm. or experience mm. like they like like there was so much you know pressure on them to you know follow up you know gish this album that you know in they had you know some a lot more time to work on and write and perfect their sound on then they have to come into this new corporate world so it was it was a really stressful time and it was kind of 
the you know it, it was like the height of it was when they you know arrived on stage where the, everybody loved them nobody had anything really bad to say about them but it was also the beginning of all their like problems and you know the very like behind the music story very typical mm-hmm. you know stuff that basically all the bands went through but the smashing pumpkins one was one of the more interesting ones i have to say mm-hmm the other portion of how he describes this time, which I think is really funny, in an earlier blog post, he is talking about, I think he's a little bit pushing against the idea that he was like a tyrant in the studio. And he's saying, our practices are a closed door secret society meeting. In here, we are learning how to mix disaster and build tornadoes, <laughs> which is all very like poetic. But then in like a following post, he literally says the pecking order on influence to the songs usually falls in this order. Billy, Jimmy, James, Darcy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like he, like I, I feel it is complicated because he is mm-hmm. driving force behind the pan, like objectively, speaking and i don't think that was because he he was the only like i like for the most part the band seemed kind of okay with that like james want when james wanted to do his own stuff he went and did his own album like it wasn't like like he did like billy didn't listen to other people even though they had some disagreements and the conflicts i think the most infamous one would probably be darcy recorded backing vocals uh, to most of a door that Billy ended up not using. It might be the best example of like wasted like effort or creativity from them. But he generally is pretty positive. He said usually says as far as the music goes, like the music itself, like that room, that practice room, that was always pretty much harmonious between them. And they always, you know, got along and were kind of on the same page with that. But you can't, but of course it's impossible to maintain this sort of, hierarchy and you know where billy is the creative lead but you have these other young artists who are trying to interested in their own things and jimmy too was very interested in like Mm -hmm. jimmy wanted to like do jazz and shit you know Mm -hmm. Uh, that was one that was one of the things i thought was really interesting is they kept or people keep talking about like the the influence of jimmy on the records as he said he's the 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 second person in the pecking order Mm -hmm. i find that dynamic between Somebody who is ostensibly lead singer, songwriter, guitarist, like is basically generating everything. The dynamic between them and the drummer being seemingly like one of the main creative engines uh, of this band. And also, as we're talking about like the dr- the actual drama, like Jimmy seems to be like kind of the biggest problem yes. guy in the band as he is really dealing heavily with drug addiction, especially as the 90s go on and later. Uh, you know, their touring keyboardist dies in an overdose in a hotel room uh, doing heroin with Jimmy Yeah, while at the same tour. time. So it's almost like by grace of God, he doesn't kill himself at the same time in that, in that hotel room. So I, I don't know. I find that tension very interesting that, that there's some something creatively between uh, Billy and the drummer Jimmy that, that really seems to be fruitful for him even while Jimmy is like slowly disintegrating in an ability to be an effective member of the band. Jimmy's still in the band now, right? I think yeah, he's he had was a couple out for of a long time. But then when the band, you know, the band broke up for the first time in the 2000s and then slowly over the like aughts and now teens, Billy's been getting back other versions of it. And Jimmy was one of the first people that could come back in like pretty completely for, for Billy. 
Yeah, and and he did leave at a certain point for a few years, and now he's back. Uh, now, um, right now with them, uh, like so, there, there was a like they had two kind of breakups. I'm assuming the first, uh, the 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 you know, three actually three they, mm-hmm. they kicked him out of the band basically and they said they kicked him out of the band basically to like save his try and save his life because mm-hmm. like nothing else uh, was working because as you mentioned with the diary entries like jimmy was dealing with drug addiction like from the early days of the band before mm-hmm. they got rich and successful and all the money in the world he mm-hmm. had a drug problem so it was like re- it got really bad by the time that they're the biggest band in the entire planet in like 1995 1996 uh, when the uh when they have to you know kick him out he and he was able to come back um later for you know one more album but and you know it's kind of been an off and on relationship but there's always been something there some real connection between billy and jimmy which Billy and say James don't really have. They have mm-hmm. a much more collegial sort of working relationship. I feel in general, like a uh, Billy would say, kind of, uh, and and Jimmy too would kind of say, like James kind of was just like hang out and wear cool clothes, but he wasn't really like a friend like the the last show they played in 2000 you know james didn't say goodbye to anyone he's just like it's just not the same kind of close relationship i think maybe that's evolved now that they're back to together but for a long time he billy basically said like you know that was a guy i was in a band with and we had a lot of great times and did a lot of good stuff but we don't talk to each other yeah Mm -hmm. i mean i will say two things james yeha very cool He's a cool dude. Cool guy. Yes, he's very cool. <laughs> uh, but then I would also say that maybe there is, I don't think it's a coincidence that Billy would describes the pecking order as Billy, Jimmy, James, Darcy. And the in terms of who has returned or deemed to work with the band or been able to, it's been Jimmy first <laughs> and a little bit James and never Darcy. No Darcy. <laughs> yeah. And, and the Darcy situation is really sad because she's struggled with addiction after, you know, the band. Mm-hmm. up a lot uh, she's had a lot of struggles and she's pretty unhappy because she wasn't invited she was billy asked her to be a part of the most recent reunion but mm-hmm. not actually to be like a full touring member of the band mm-hmm. because reading between the lines i don't think billy thinks that she is capable of performing up to what his standards are and yeah. mm-hmm. and i don't necessarily think think I, I mean i can't judge but i don't necessarily think that's a wrong concern for him to have i wish he would give her a chance to see what's going on we don't know i don't think we'll ever yeah, know what's it, going it, on behind the scenes but it is not a situation where just one person is a villain or anything from what i understand yeah i mean i think in the in the moment it's it's easy especially as i was saying that the music press was very it seemed very keen to portray him as, as you know a tyrant that <laughs> these people were having very complicated lives and billy was trying to keep a massive band rolling that was basically all under his creative control so i i, I don't know i until until the full 2000 page memoir comes out i don't yeah. think we'll know the full story but i think even reading in between the lines from now it, it it i think that he comes off as a lot more reasonable as people than people maybe tried to portray him at the time yeah 
I mean, and, and th- I mean, the, uh, it, the thing that always strikes me about any of these bands is like, how many of us like meet people at like 20 in a bar and then decide to work with them for the next 40 years? You know, <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. That's, that's, that's a great point. That's just not something that really happens to normal people. But if you're in a band, that's what is expected of you. Like you're supposed to be tied to this person that you kind of hang out with a little bit. And you like the same kind of music for the rest of your life, regardless of any other interpersonal issues or conflicts or situations you're dealing with. And you're having a lot of interpersonal conflict because you're in these high pressure situations you're very young you're doing drugs you're you have no homes you're you're traveling all over the world you don't know what to do about anything and it's really just it's just amazing that people when people survive that and a lot of people just did not survive uh, Mm -hmm. to to get to the point where you know billy james jimmy and darcy are sadly so many of their contemporaries contemporaries have passed away and couldn't deal with this so i think it's always a bit too much to ask of them to like still be the same people and band that they were you know uh, 20 30 40 years ago it it is the particular bizarreness of our current you know modern pop music formulation of the band as both a group of creative partners and individual celebrities Mm. who are then collectively a single celebrity I would say that the most, one of the most uh, uh, exceptional things that you can be as a successful band is boring. Like, honestly, you too. You too. Or something like that. Like, <laughs> just or a Radiohead. band who has like, always been four guys who are like, we're fine. We're just making, we're making monster music. Yeah. Yeah. And Billy, and Billy always say, says, like, uh, when in his, you know, more, I guess, more, uh, you know, um, cynical moments, like, I, I just always thought we were such fucking idiots because we just we could have just kept the ball rolling and we would all be fucking multi-billionaires by now. <laughs> if we had just mm-hmm. kept going, we would have, you know, uh, like we would be like a U2. Like, yeah, like uh-huh. I, I, I do, do think there's a little bit of, you know, truth to that. I think uh, he might have had to do a couple of different things with the sound than the choices he made. But I really do think if there was a consistent smashing pumpkins lineup from the beginning to now, people will talk, would talk about the band in a very, you know, different way. Yep. That makes sense. Uh, should we play just a little clip uh, off Sammy's dream while Molly, you maybe want to go into the next segment just so we have some, some sure. audio from this era. I think we just got to go with the, the chair of rock. Cause okay. come on. Drums are amazing. The drums yeah. are, are great. I just love the first like forty seconds of this song, where you just it just keeps building and building, and you don't think it can get better, and then it just like adds even more like 
the, when the banon, banon, banon down, like line comes in on top of everything that's been building up. So good. Signature pumpkin song. Uh, what an anthem. What a what a uh, album opener. I'll let this play out a little. So what's going on in the, the blogs? The, the kind of one-off moment that he does devote a lot of word count to that I just want to briefly mention is he gets married in 1993 to, I think, like a six-year on-and-off girlfriend. The one who said, I think it's the same one who said, like, I think you have a future in music. Um, and he gets married at his house. And... It spirals out of control, <laughs> as weddings like tend to do, <laughs> of like him wanting it to be chill and casual, and uh, it, it just like gets totally built up and blown out. But the way he describes getting married, and of course this is at, from the perspective of someone who divorced this woman four years later. <laughs> so he says, my head goes numb as the priest doles out the words. The commitment of the moment overtakes me and I well up inside with emotions indescribable. The words I do tumble out like rocks, but she looks like she is a million miles away from me. Her eyes glassed over. If there was ever a time I needed her to be present, it is right now, but I can't find her. Oh, And then later he sees a high school friend, a girl, and she kind of like says, like, hey, you good man? And he says to her, um, I am not sure what I have just done. <laughs> uh, that does not does not bode well for their marriage, and of course, we already know the end end to it. Uh, he's yeah. a good writer, though. That's a very des- descriptive and evocative. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that that ends up not going great. I think they're divorced in 1997, which would probably be at the end of the Melancholy tour which I yes. think was like a super long tour. Yes, and that was after they already had, you know, um, their keyboardist OD on tour and Jimmy mm-hmm. uh, having to be kicked out of the band. And that was also around the time that Billy's mother died as well. So he was, uh, it was not a good time for him at all. Yeah. yeah. Even though it and was that, the height of the band's success. Yeah, that's the that's the kind of last time period that he deals with in the live journal where, yeah, all of this stuff has happened. And in theory, you know, he's made a lot of money. He's very famous and rich and successful. But he says, I feel like a deposed king. I really have become a rat in a cage. (laughs) (laughs) Self-fulfilling prophecy, perhaps. Um, He's also saying he's got like three different stalkers. People find his house and they smash pumpkins on his porch. (laughs) (laughs) That's not cool, man. (laughs) <laughs> I'm sure that that the was disrespect. meant to be a uh, to be a, a ode to him, but um, it takes a lot of cleaning up. Uh, I also like we just as a as an aside on the stalkers. As I was reading up on James Eha, I saw this thing listed that apparently James Eha in the early 2000s James had an imposter in the Chicagoland area who was arrested, and I found that and I clicked through and I can only find this referenced on James Eha official bio on JamesEha.com with no external references to it. So I'm very interested in this early 2000s Chicagoland James Eha imposter. <laughs> I mean, I, I could definitely see people pulling it off because like the hair and the sunglasses are like the main things you notice about James usually. So it'd be fairly easy for someone like, 
like Virgil could pull off like a fake <laughs> James Eha. Yeah, with enough moose, yeah, and just go into bars and say it in, in Chicago and be like, hey, just tell them that I'm James Eha and ask for free drinks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm more interested in what this James uh, imposter was trying to accomplish when he was, yeah. like, was he trying to like sleep with people or like steal money? I'm, this needs to be like a movie, maybe. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, Billy's life at that time does seem extremely intense. There's so many things going on for him right there to deal with. Because then it's not only do, do uh, Jimmy and the keyboard just overdose, but then they decide to continue like another six months of the tour by like yeah. immediately hiring uh, replacements for which they got. He got like Limbassid for seeming like cruel or out of touch or uncaring for uh, his, his bandmates. I mean, it all just like adds to his what people were generally saying about him of being like this, you know, callous control freak. And and again, like they're a young people, young band at the peak of their success and fame, knowing that it's all downhill from here. And the, you know, their drug addict drummer who's been screaming about how much he hates them every fucking day on the tour bus has finally done this to us and giving us this horrible thing. We're being sued, all this stuff. Like, I mean, I'm speaking from their young, immature perspective, but that's how they, you know, felt about it. Like we've been mm-hmm. trying to like, like, like a lot of people would have made the same choice. Like, am, are they going to throw away like this huge opportunity they worked for because the guy who's been ruining it all, all along has finally, you know, imploded. Like I would think a, lo- a lot of people, especially when they're young and immature and scared would make kind of similar choices. No, absolutely. To, to stop a machine, like a tour, the size of um, the melancholy tour in the middle of it, would have, I'm sure, from even their, their their like label and everything. I'm sure it would have seemed like oh, a, basically yeah. a non-starter of a choice. Oh like, yeah, no, you cannot mm-hmm. cancel these dates. That's that's millions of dollars uh, that we've already sold. Uh, like, at you know, and again, because they're stuck in this time where like credibility is very very important, and like again, that that idea of like, are you a sellout or are you not, is something that people very much care about both in the fandom and in the press, but the actual logistics of doing that have very little to do with whether you care about selling out or care about Jimmy more. It's, it's more like it is a logistic impossibility. I'm imagining yeah. that it is like a logistic impossibility to make any decision other than the one that makes you look like an asshole, but you get to do the show for all your fans who have already bought, brought ticket, bought tickets. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, I mean, I and mean, your mom just died. <laughs> yeah, and you, like there's there was so much going on. It's really hard to, you know, judge these things from the outside. And the fact is like all those people did kept buying those tickets, right? Yeah. Like they didn't stop buy, like like everybody was, you know, complicit in it. Everybody was kind of like, "Wow, that's wild that that guy died on the Smashing Pumpkins tour." Uh, but I hope the new drummer lives up. Uh, yeah, but I hope it sucks that good. guy died. I hope the Madison show is as good as the I heard the Chicago one was. Yeah, yeah. So you know, no one's hands are clean on this. One. <laughs> exactly. You just you got to see the pumps. Got to see those pumps. Uh, should we listen to it a little bit? This is skipping ahead uh, just a bit, but it seems appropriate to pay now. This is off a door, which is 1998. There, uh, the pumpkins go electric. Uh, or I would should, should electronic. say electronic <laughs> uh, album. This is a uh, for Martha, the song that uh, Billy wrote for his mom. 
this will be a sad one, I'm sure. so mournful his his voice is I love so, his voice. so much emotion for being for that nasally midwestern twang it's 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 so it it is great but it is also like every time his voice comes in in a song i'm, I'm it's funny to me yeah so adore was very controversial and billy corrigan figured out his mistake with it he called it an electronic album instead of an acoustic album Ooh, there's a take. If he had called it an acoustic album, he would have been given a pass for not, you know, making Siamese Dream Part 3. Because nobody, Mm -hmm. uh, acoustic album doesn't count. You can do whatever you want. But people judged this as if it was supposed to be the follow-up to Melancholy and Princess. And they didn't really like how quiet it was and how sad it was. Mm-hmm. I do like the idea of the acoustic album as the freebie yeah. of like everyone gets one, maybe every like five albums you get one. Yeah. You re- you redeem your coupon. Yeah. Well, it's also like, I, I mean, I don't know. I can't really speak for what, for what this expectation was at the time, but as you've done this, this run of albums, I mean, I guess we haven't really talked about uh Pisces is uh, a lot, but you know, the, the, the ones that got the, the biggest, uh, 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 press Gish to Siamese Dream to Melancholy, this like huge ramp up in this like sound and and rock. I guess the the expectation is just to keep building yes. up instead of being like, no, there's going to be a lot of Smashing Pumpkins albums, and this one is just going to be one that sounds different, and then the next one will sound different from that. You know, like uh, uh, it, the the expectation that there should be like some kind of linear growth yeah, between all of these things, yeah. other than just like here's more stuff from the band. Yes, that's exactly that's. I've never heard it uh, phrased better, Chris. I've never heard it phrased better. I've been talking about Smashing Pumpkins for thirty years, but yeah, that's exactly it. Like people just expected them to just keep raising the alt rock bar higher mm-hmm. and higher, and then they just like took a huge, massive, and quite deliberate uh, detour due to you know like all the stuff that we were just talking yeah. yeah personal you know feelings personal art, art artistry like how he wanted to express these emotions and like he really like just he could have done it he could have done the next 
thing, but he he didn't. He he chose to go in a different path, and they never really kind of re- recovered from it. So to call them like a sellout, like they almost did the opposite of selling mm. out at their highest point. You know, they did. They, re- they really did. Yeah, I mean, and I feel like a, tons of bands that get that big come under that expectation that every single album is supposed to be the last album, but more. And then when you try to do something new, it, it, it is often the thing that people either just cannot handle or if you're really, really good at it, it is signifies you as like one of the all-time legends. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think at this point, people were probably very, um, again, this is what I understand to be the thing that was going on as people were like swirled up and like kind of the tabloidy talk about what was going on personnel wise within the band. And then the follow up to melancholy to kind of takes this like orthogonal step in the, the band's evolution. So they're like, Oh, this is, you know, it, it represents a failure because there's both personal failure in the band. And this isn't just the last thing, but more like has Corgan lost his step. Is he too crazy? Like blah, blah, blah. But I mean, I don't know. I like this album. Ava Adore is great. Yeah, it's a I, I, it's a really you know fantastic album. It took me a while uh, to learn to love it, but I absolutely uh, adore it now. And, <laughs> I adore it. Yeah, and it, it's you know it it really is like a really interesting. Like no other band really would do this. Like no other band mm-hmm. would really like change this much after you know hitting that peak and they were and if you listen to like you there are outtakes from the album that are more in line with that old melancholy that old Siamese dream melancholy sound he could have Mm -hmm. done that he had it in the chamber and he just like said no (laughs) (laughs) you know in terms of the live journal the last segment that I think is kind of the perfect way because he he basically this is kind of the end point chronologically of his writing about his life. And he describes himself at the time of recording a door that I think is like kind of crucial to hear. Um, because I should say too, that the, he moved the recording of a door from Chicago to LA because you gotta, you know, one of the most successful bands, like yeah. you gotta throw a bunch of money at it. You gotta go to LA. Yeah. Um, but in LA, um, he's obviously incredibly depressed. And he says, <laughs> I march into a Ferrari dealer and pay cash on the barrel for a brand new 355. <laughs> and I buy two pairs of leather pants at the urging of my European girlfriend. If you were to pull up to, next to me at a red light, you would find a depressed, bald-headed, overweight Pisces wearing leather head to toe. I would be listening to Prince B-sides, avoiding eye contact, but feeling as if the whole world was staring at me in my silver spaceship. I am aware I am living in a cartoon playing in a fictional band and I am along for the ride. Ugh, yes. Really. <laughs> I mean, I'm in a fictional ba- band. I mean, I guess that really like captures what I imagine he's thinking is like he's the band is still exists, but it must have felt at a certain level like it was falling apart at that at that time since he's having to do all these lineup changes. And I, I think what comes through hearing about this and like really reading it is the amount to which um he has struggled over the career to being like trying to reconcile the extent to which uh, Le Bon c'est moi, like he is the <laughs> band and, and it doesn't really matter who's in it versus how much he owes to his personnel and the people around him to be part of the band. Well, also, I do think it ties to, I didn't mention it before, but just his relationship in his childhood to being 
you know, so mistreated by all the parental figures in his life, but have like kind of knowing that he had something special in him. And the way he described it was like, I um like I want to hide, but I can't hide enough. And then I also want to be seen. So I feel like this like mode of him where he's in just like leather rock star mode kind of represents that where he's like all he wants to do is like go inward. But he knows that like being outward is sort of his curse in a way. Yeah, like when Billy Corgan ever talks really about like what like being a celebrity, he never really talks clearly about what he personally gets out of it. But mm. you just get that vague sense of he's oh, well, he said it in the songs, though, like he's still that little boy trying to get the approval of like his parents and his step parents and his grandparents and he's still like is like and like he's trying to navigate this industry and this celebrity culture that he is mostly disdainful of but it's the only way that a musician can make his way through it that's why billy corgan has always been one of the first people on all these platforms he had a myspace he had a facebook he had a mm. you know he had he, he's been you know they put out that album first they he's always looking for the next thing be, uh way to deliver his music out there to express himself out there both for mercenary reasons because this is a smart way to run his business but also because i feel uh, in a certain point he's still trying to find a way to make this something that actually makes him like happy and fulfilled i don't know if he has ever really truly felt fulfilled by his career or his work mm. i i think he finds great joy in the work and the touring and me and in some joy from meeting uh the fans uh he can be a little bit prickly at times but he if if fans if fans who really appreciate the music he really appreciates but generally speaking like i don't think on the whole being in the Smashing Pumpkins makes him happy. <laughs> it's like his job, you know. Mm. Uh, they can never really leave. And he doesn't know and can't really do anything else aside. But he did start uh, a pro wrestling company. He bought the NWA. Uh, he spent <laughs> a lot of time in pro wrestling. And people were really, like, surprised by that. I'm like, oh, I bet he has a lot more fun doing wrestling than he has uh, doing music at this point. Yes. Mm. I, I it just makes me Google the headline of his Wikipedia page is William Patrick Corgan Jr. is an American singer, songwriter, and professional wrestling promoter. Yeah. <laughs> it makes him sound like so much like anybody else with that tagline to them, you'd be like, oh, this guy is like some kind of huckster. Uh, <laughs> it's like he it only works for him. Mm. So that's the uh the end of the blogs, really, Molly. Sadly, sadly for now. Said, I hope he blogs more. Uh, well, it, it's, all, it's all leading up to the thousand page, two thousand page memoir. Uh, you said that this makes like a put all together. It's like a sixty page little memoir novella. It's like a little novella. Yeah, it's a pretty decent chunk of writing. Is pretty good writing. Yeah, I would highly recommend if you're a Corgan head, Corgan or even non Corgan fans to to give it a read. And I would recommend. Hit hit control P on your computer so you can just download it as a PDF. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, it's one of those things like he is a rock icon. We have to like 
keep him and preserve him and preserve all of this because he was there when all the music that we either grew up with in my case or like your older brother was listening to or you know that eventually degenerated into uh your nickelback so you're thinking parks yeah the new like, yeah. type stuff yeah yeah like this is like i i'm glad that he's you know still around because we're never going to get you know these stories from Lane or Chris Cornell or, you know, (laughs) Kurt uh, Cobain, although we do have some of his memoirs, but like it's, I'm glad he's still around. He he is very active on Instagram. He answers questions. Uh, Don't come at him sideways though, because he is from Chicago and he, he's like, he's threatened to fight people. I guess we didn't get into this, but like (laughs) he has threatened to like punch and like, getting physical confrontations with people and i believe him too uh, Mm -hmm. a lot of times he is a very much a chicago guy he he in the in the blog also uh details a bunch of times where fisticuffs were either threatened or like almost followed through on including once when he went to istanbul and he almost got into it with a street vendor (laughs) 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 which like Okay. <laughs> yeah. Again, it's like as I was saying in the beginning, he's I, he's got all these contradictions in him because he's like very se- sensitive, but also very confrontational. Um, yeah. I, I want to play something. I, I just have two video clips I want to share with you guys that I love uh, as we go out. This first one is from uh, two years ago that I really like. Uh, I got to share the whole screen with you on this this one. Uh, this is Billy Corgan. I believe the show is in yeah New Jersey, and. Peter Hook, bassist of Joy Division, gets on stage with Peter with uh, with Billy Corgan to play Transmission. But I would just like you guys to uh, maybe Leslie or Molly, you could describe what you see as the difference between Billy and Peter. All right. <laughs> so uh, Billy is wearing a the outfit for a vampire priest uh, right now, and I think. Oh, Pete is in an orange T-shirt and some cargo shorts. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they're both older men at this point, um, but they've come to different conclusions. Even though I think, ultimately, I think Billy is the more, like, working class one and Peter is the more, like, posh, artistic one in their day-to-day lives, probably. Uh, I, I like to think that maybe going through this, that maybe this is like the uh, the two sides, because Billy is obviously very happy to have Peter Hook on stage. I mean, play, oh, yeah, he playing guitar him. over Peter Hook on bass, I mean, what a dream. Uh, but like, maybe these are the two sides of Billy, the, the gothic vampire and then the guy who just wants to wear cargo shorts and play cool bass lines. Yeah. <laughs> like, like he said, he said, like the reason, like on tours, he usually wears the same outfit every night. But not as like he said he described it as like putting on my superhero costume. Yeah, which is like a like a little boy thing, you know. It's not like a pretentious art thing. It's like okay, this is my you know, this is my outfit. This is what I do when I go out there and play that character in that fake band called the Smashing Monkeys. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I imagine that you, for a certain type of person, you really do have to like you have to put on the mask to go on stage and become this person because a lot of people put a lot of psychic energy into you and like. <laughs> Obviously, Hook, Hooky at this point doesn't really care, or maybe he wasn't expecting to come on yeah. stage at all. Maybe he was just walking, watching back, backstage. And, but, and, uh, and we should mention that Davey Havoc 
is out here who is a younger uh, someone who was influenced by Billy Corgan and he's the guy only guy that's dressed like the mature adult yes. uh, it, like you have either the cargo shorts or you have the vampire priest but Davey Havoc's the only one that's actually dressed like an egg yeah just like, like a sensible slacks and a nice fitting shirt yeah so I wanted to play this. I love this clip, and I'll put a link, link Also, to it. I just want to point out, they're playing in New Jersey on August 2nd, 2018, and I feel like uh, Hook is dressed for New Jersey August, and Billy Corgan is not. <laughs> yes. He could not go outside in that. It would be I'm very I'm sweating heavy. looking at him. <laughs> oh, but look at them. They're all singing it together. And yeah, their- this is really great. Yeah. Even though I do have to say this is not my vav- favorite version of the Smashing Pumpkins transmission, I much prefer the late Adore era, which was very slow and grimy and creepy. Um, Ooh, yeah. I would I have to listen to that. I don't think I've ever heard them. Oh, is that? Is and it's that like game? twenty minutes oh, yeah. long too, as well. Hell yeah, I would love to hear that. I love transmission covers. I love any Joy Division co- cover. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then just talking about the final clip I have to play is talking about is Billy Corgan happy? And do we think he's happy on stage right now? Maybe, probably. He's probably feels like it's work, but he's probably happy to be playing with with Peter Hook. Here's where, and Molly flagged this for me, where I think that Billy Corgan is actually very happy. And it is singing, Take Me Out to the Ball Game. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, at a Chicago Cubs game. Uh, so I think the audio quality here is bad, but, but I just wanted to play a little clip of this. On the, on the board. The entirety of the Wrigley Field singing with him. That is my suggestion for Billy Corgan's happy place. Yeah, that was that's great, and that was during his uh, two thousand early two thousands era, his Chicago guy era, yeah. where he would just always <laughs> be in scarves and hats and like three like coats, and he, he just looked like Chicago guy. He looks like everybody yeah, he in Chicago he's wearing like a bucket hat and a giant wool scarf. And yes, as you described, he looks like he's wearing about six jackets <laughs> in that clip. Uh, but he's he's out there rooting for the Cubbies to get some runs, and I think that that in the end that that probably feels most natural. It's for very. Him. Pure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I think that's that's enough Corgan for today. We're about at about one, um, hour thirty five right now. Presumably, sometime in the future, that memoir will come out, and we'll have to dive back in. And oh talk yeah, a yeah. absolutely. And we'd love to have you back on, Leslie. For oh great, for that, period. that would be wonderful. Um, Molly, do you have any final thoughts? Um, I justice for Billy. He's. Yeah. <laughs> I think he's. I, I empathize with him and I appreciate his drama and sensitivity and uh, we're, we're blessed to have him among us. I think that that is right. I think that he, he with, when you kind of first know about him, he, he comes off as a bit maligned. And I think that the more that I've, at least personally, the more that I've ever read about him or the pumps, the more I'm like, no, this guy rocks and their music rocks. Yeah. Uh, Leslie, if you have any final thoughts and also you can roll that right into plugs if you want to oh, talk absolutely. about Struggle Session a little bit. Yeah. So I do want to say this does work with Struggle Session. So Struggle Session, you can hear us at sesh.plus. That's S-E-S-H dot Good, good URL. Yeah, I like it. I like it. And what we talk about on the show is the intersection 
intersection of politics and pop culture and as you know socialist leftist communist how we feel about listening and watching uh music movies and films made by people who are to the right or made or mm-hmm. produced by uh, generally speaking our society which is extremely you know sexist racist homophobic transphobic and that does bring us to billy corgan because he has personally expressed some views that people generally uh, have assumed mean he's like super far alt right but really uh, when i'm diving in he like he did an interview with alex jones but i really do think that was more like oh a god pro, a, a pro wrestling thing that was like <laughs> okay. alex jones just a great entertainer like yeah. and billy and billy according to show me he did agree you know but really billy corgan's politics are that of the paranoid libertarian stream mm. more than the alt-right stream he does do a little bit of culture war but we have to remember in the 90s the people who wanted to you know censure say you can't say that were the conservatives so i feel like a lot of gen x people they're having a problem like squaring the circle when now the people who saying you can't say that tend to be on the left and they don't know really how to feel about that and it's a struggle for them because they're old now you know it's hard really hard for them to navigate and i think we tend to take it as oh if you're raging against censorship that means you're like alt-right but like in the 90s it was it was like rappers you know Mm-hmm. And rockers mm-hmm. who were saying that it wasn't it it was it wasn't you know a a, a alt right thing uh, to say that so I think Billy Corgan his politics aren't socialist in uh, any sense of the word but I do think they're not as right wing as like the blogs make it out to get like a quick headline out. I, I I will say that I saw in my research something that I entertained and this is a good deep cut for uh, Chapo fans that uh, Corgan once post a uh, Larucheite uh, Lyndon Larouche. Uh, um, speech or uh speaking engagement on the official smashing pumpkins <laughs> message board so uh you know for for those who listen to chapo and have heard us talk about Lyndon larouche over there that kind of gives you an insight to what one might describe as idiosyncratic uh political yeah. beliefs yeah he's not he doesn't have a clear you know he d- i don't think he really has a clear political uh stance other than he doesn't want to pay that much in taxes which is like very common i think with like music musicians who were working class and hit it big or Mm -hmm. other creatives who were didn't come from like the taylor swift background and hit it big because they actually did work hard for their money and like they don't want the government to take it because they worked hard it was all these other bands i came up with they're they're they were rich kids who fucked around and fucked off with their money and Mm -hmm. wasted Mm -hmm. it all why should i have to pay for their bullshit so i i obviously i don't agree agree by understand where that's coming from uh more than just saying it's a right or left thing although i do say possibly uh he has said according to wiki rational wiki it says he's in favor of donald trump but i don't see a source on Mm. that right source for that claim please I i will not believe it until i see it I, sh- I should say here, too, though, that if anyone does explore those uh, Billy Corgan live journals, you will find a uh, couple of instances of transphobic language that yes. we hear at introducing do not condone. Yes, uh, yes, yes. And, you know, it's not great. I'm not really sure where that comes from. But what, uh, I yeah. So first, well, it is worth saying everybody was transphobic until like a year ago for more true. or less. But truly, <laughs> very true. Uh, 
truly. And there was like Billy Corgan, the Smash Mouth have had do have a lot of LGBTQ fans, and he's generally had a good relationship with them. There was an incident, uh, in a particular incident, where he had a conflict with a trans uh, woman that he was working with, and he sent some heard some very nasty transphobic stuff and this was a few years before that would you know get you like permanently canceled so nobody mm. really talks about this nobody, like it's been completely memory memory hole but he had this really you know offensive exchange with her i think he did uh end up apologizing uh for it and like a lot of the fans were disappointed but i think he i i don't really remember and it would be hard to look up because it was like before like everything was properly archived and mm-hmm. every, everything online but it, he did say some transphobic stuff about a woman he was working with it was very nasty stuff too but i do think he apologized for it and generally speaking he hasn't said anything that i i've seen otherwise that is like offensive or racist or homophobic generally Generally speaking, I, I I haven't read everything he said. He he said that that seemed like one it, that was at least taking at the time by the fandom at least as one incidence of like fucking up. He said a fucking gamer word kind of thing. Like and people <laughs> kind of moved on from that, not thinking that he lo- was legitimate. Uh, he was a bigot now if that happened today, that would not be the conversation at all whatsoever. But yeah, uh, that was like. 10 15 years ago you know so yeah very different uh time yeah i yep, will yep. say speaking of just L- the lgbtq lgbtq uh community and uh smashing pumpkins molly and i maybe this is one of the reasons we had Korg in our mind recently i guess last fall before the quarantine saw a smashing pumpkin scene uh themed cabaret by who was the performer salty brine by, uh new york area uh, cabaret performer Salty Brine that was half of a kind of uh, gay coming of age story mixed in with cabaret style performances of a selected selected samples from a uh, uh, melancholy that was effectively also mashed yep. up with Judy Garland at uh, Carnegie Hall. Like yeah. it was pretty nuts. It was it, cool. It was effectively a Smashing Pumpkins like drag show. Yep, uh, and it worked extremely well like those songs worked very well in that in that context um and you know it made you consider uh billy corgan gay icon maybe i i (laughs) i I can't speak for it but from being in the fandom for a lot of fans he was i mean he was wearing dresses yeah in the in the 90s so like it was very disappointing to him for him to you know say all that you know transphobic stuff because like Dude, you wear dresses. Like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Like, what? <laughs> like, do you not? Uh, but yeah, um, yeah. yeah. But I, I do want to put. Uh, I have looked up the alleged Donald Trump endorsement, and it does really kind of explain Billy Corgan succinctly. And he didn't endorse Donald Trump, but what he actually said was, "I think what's cool, and I'm not saying I agree politically, but I think what's cool is Trump's running chaos theory. He's forcing a lot of things out into the open so they can't control this, whatever that control is. It's like the music business. Everybody gets controlled and somebody comes along that fucks it all up. So I think it's good that he's fucking it up because whether or not he's the guy, 
Obviously, the political class doesn't want him there. It'll open it up to a bigger dialogue. And whether anybody agrees or not, the rating on that debate was 24 million. It was eight times higher than the first Republican debate of the last cycle. It was the highest non-sports related cable rating of all time. That means people are engaged. I would argue at this point, is there any difference between politics and entertainment? Wow. 100% true. Wow. That is that is correct for Mr. Corgan. Well, <laughs> considering Bill, well let's let's wrap up on considering Billy Corgan's uh uh political views. Uh and stamp it, it's complicated. Uh <laughs> but let's move str- uh confidently into the end part of this episode. As Leslie said, struggle session, find it at sesh.plus. Yes, absolutely. Sesh.plus. Thank you so much. Great. I was just listening to your uh, your wrap-up on The Boys Season 1 because I, as of this weekend, Molly knows, I'm now in binge mode on The Boys Season 2. Oh, and uh, Season 2 episode is coming soon. And that, oh, you ha- if you haven't finished, you haven't seen anything yet. Yeah, I'm <laughs> I'm enjoying it very greatly. That show's good. And the, the struggle session episodes are a good uh, a compliment to it. Uh, listen along with. Molly, do you have anything to plug? Uh, nothing in particular. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm just now realizing that this should theoretically come out the day after the uh, 2020 presidential election. So uh, there might be weird vibes that day. I I, I will maybe I might might end up having to hold this a day or two, but uh, uh, hope you hope everybody's feeling nice and normal and cool uh, when this does come out. Yeah. Uh, But in the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at and intro pod. Or send us an email at andintroducingpod at gmail.com. Uh, Molly just told me that some people so- have already sent us some of their top 10 albums lists from our last episode, which is very thankful. I did, are very great. I didn't think that anybody would actually do that. Yeah, please continue to do that. Yeah, and maybe we'll read some of those uh, on a future ep. Uh, and as always, our SoundCloud is at soundcloud.com slash and dash intro dash pod. And rate and review us on iTunes, whatever. Mostly tell a friend. Mm-hmm. Uh, shout out to Trevor Ewan, a uh, friend from college who I just saw was telling a friend about us on Twitter. Wonderful. So do that. Anybody on Twitter who's like, hey, give me some good podcast apps, throw that and intro link in there. Uh, well, until next time, I will sign off uh, for more infinite sadness because there is always more when the sadness is infinite. We'll be back in another two weeks. The story of an artist's life. Bye. Bye.